Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, it is good to be in your house this day. It is good to know that if we are in Christ, all is well with our soul. For we know that our sins are forgiven and that we have received His righteousness so that we are acceptable in your sight. We know, Father, that we continue to sin, but we know that our sins are paid for and we rejoice in knowing that wonderful truth. And we pray, Father, that your Spirit would continue to enable us to put sin off and to grow in the likeness of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and knowledge as we continue to study this passage in 1 Timothy that gives us the standard and the qualifications for the pastor elder as we as a church continue to make sure that we understand these truths so that as we seek those that would fulfill this office, Father, that we would have the wisdom and knowledge of Scripture and be guided by Your Spirit. We thank You, Father, that You provide Your church with the officers that it needs. We pray, Father, that You would continue to guide us and give us wisdom. We pray, Father, also for Your mercy and grace upon sinners. We thank You for Your church and its obligation to preach the gospel throughout the world and We pray that many would be brought into your kingdom this day. We thank you that you continue to grow your church and use it for your honor and glory. We pray, Father, for Miss Linda Forrest's family, and we pray that the sermon that was preached yesterday would work in the lives of those who are your children and bring them to saving faith. We pray, Father, that they would see the love of this church and how it was expressed to them in different ways. And we pray that you use that as a testimony to show that we desire to not only love the living God, but also to love our neighbor as ourselves, as you have commanded us. We thank you, Father, for that opportunity that you gave us. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us this day. You know their reason to need, and we pray that you minister to them and would be pleased to bring them back to us quickly. We pray that all that would be said in this sermon would bring honor and glory to the name of Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn again with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will read verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, a good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We see that Paul gives us the standard and the qualification of those who are called to be the leaders of Christ's church. And he lays down the call and the characteristics of these church leaders who are called, in this passage, bishop, but we looked at last week, that can also be a synonym for pastor, elder, overseer. I hope you clearly understood that from last week's sermon. If you did not hear last week's sermon, you can go back and listen to it online. Now these words that Paul write are indeed precious and essential to his son in the faith, Timothy, who himself was an elder there at Ephesus. And though Paul is addressing Timothy, he was also addressing all the Christians there 
at Ephesus. And likewise, these words are for us today. Things that had gone not so well there in the church at Ephesus. There were a number of problems that had arisen. So Paul sets out to set those things straight, to exhort the elders there at the church. Now one of the problems was that church leaders, some were no longer committed to teaching sound doctrine there. Instead, they were preaching other things besides sound doctrine, which Paul had taught them in his three years as he had been there. They were speaking of fables and endless genealogies. And these teachings that they were teaching was causing division in the church, was causing arguments to be given to one another. And rather than godly edification in the faith, they were, you could say, I guess, bickering with one another. And that's sad to say happens in the church. I can remember the early days of even our church, there were some of those situations that we had to deal with. I'll never forget one gentleman one Sunday after Sunday school or at the end of Sunday school stood up and said, Rome has spoken and stormed out of the church because he disagreed with what had been taught that morning in Sunday school. So we see that it can happen even in our day, and it does happen in our day, so therefore we have to be very wise and very careful, and the leaders of the church have to address such issues as that. Now, in chapter 4, Paul states that they talked of old wise fables and were covetous for money. So Paul calls these false teachers that had entered into the church Satan's servants. Now those are strong words. But yet when someone teaches contrary to God's word, what are they doing? They're acting like the devil, are they not? Remember how the devil came to Adam and Eve and said, Did God not say? And what did he do? He twisted the words of God. And likewise, those that enter into the church and do such can be called servants of Satan due to their teaching, which is heresy, and how they pervert the gospel. That's a serious matter, and we must take that very serious. Because we're talking about life and death, spiritual life and death. And when someone perverts the gospel, they must be approached. They must be dealt with seriously. The church throughout history has faced such problems. In America, we continue to battle these problems, and it's amazing to me at what is being taught in some churches. Uh, I would say you need to visit some churches, but I don't want you to do that. Uh, maybe you can listen to them online and see what's being taught in some church and what I'm talking about there. There has also been a rise of women entering into the ministry seeking to be pastors. Well, Scripture clearly teaches, and Paul addresses it in this particular passage himself, that women are not to have authority over men. Now, this doesn't mean that women are not important in the church. I hope you don't get that idea. No, women are very important in the church, but their office is not that of a pastor. And we must make that very clear, especially in our day when so many women have taken upon that role as a pastor. They are not pastors. The Scripture clearly says that they are not. And we must, therefore, speak that truth out and say that God does have a particular role for a woman in the church, but it's simply not being a pastor. I'm thankful for the women of this church. Matter of fact, sometimes women do a lot more than men, and that should be, of course, an embarrassment to us men that we should be even more faithful than the women. Many large churches, of course, look at men to run the church like a business, that he himself would be the CEO. And it's sad that they do run the church like a business, and their only concern is what we would call the three Bs, buildings, budgets, and baptisms. And that's what some men focus on. And even in some denomination, churches uh, don't hold a clear doctrinal statement, or if they have a clear doctrinal statement, 
these churches in those denominations don't hold to those clear doctrinal statements. And of course, they should be dealt with and pastors should speak out against those churches that do not hold to the doctrinal statement of their uh, denomination or their association of churches. But yet pastors are fearful for some reason or another in our day to speak out against false teachers who don't meet the qualifications. Of course, there is one doctrine that pastors will speak out against. That's called the C doctrine. Uh, if you don't know what the C doctrine is, that is uh, Calvinism. And most people don't understand what Calvinism is. They don't even understand why the five points of Calvinism was uh, given. They don't understand that Arminius wrote five points that were contrary to what Scripture teaches. And Calvin was simply addressing his heresy. People don't understand that. It's kind of like one quote that I sent out this week to some of our guys, uh, former evangelism, wrote in 2000 that there is not one nickel difference between liberalism, five-point Calvinism, and dead orthodox. They're all enemies of soul winning. Now I must say, folks, that statement shows how ignorant that individual is. Because that is so false. But yet people build straw men and make such statements as that. The greatest preachers throughout history were solid Reformed Calvinists. And we need to understand that. And we need to tell people. We need to address such ridiculous statements as that. Now most problems in the church comes back to this particular question. Who is called to be a pastor and what are his qualifications and what is his work? And Paul, we see that through this epistle to Timothy, establishes God's principles for Christ's church and its leadership. He sets down the standard for the leaders of Christ's church. And He gives to us those things that we must know as a church. He sets things right in the church by stating how people are to be obedient to the leaders of the church and behave themselves. Now, in order to do this, Paul makes it very clear, first of all, what the qualifications of church leaders are, and each local church has the same qualifications, without exception. Now, we must keep in mind that Christ Himself has purchased the church with His own blood. It's Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It is Christ's church, and Christ Himself is the one that tells us how to govern His church. And He does that not only through His own words that He speaks, but also through the words of His apostles, and one of those apostles being Paul Himself. But yet Christ is the one who has all authority over His church, and He has conveyed that authority to us in the Word of God. So it is Christ who is asking His church more or less, did I not die for you? Did I not shed my blood to redeem you? Then I will give you spiritual leaders, men who have spiritual virtue and godly responsibility over you to lead you into the truth. Now the first question that I must ask is, what kind of man is to be the leader of Christ's church? And we began to look at that last week. Paul tried to set the record straight in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when he was getting ready to leave the church there at Ephesus. He said, Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we see that Paul speaks to the elders there at Ephesus. And these elders that he speaks to, he charges them to be diligent, to be faithful in their work. And he committed to them the care of the church. Now, it was evidently a very large church there in Ephesus. 
And we have to understand the New Testament churches that we see in these particular cities would say like the church at Ephesus. It would be like saying the church at Jackson. But how many churches are there in the metro area? There's hundreds of them. Well, at this time, there, same thing in Ephesus, there was the church. But they were located all over Ephesus, just like what we would see today. Now again, if Paul was writing to the church at Brandon, or the church at the Metropolitan of Jackson, he would be dealing with a lot of problems, right? Because there are so many places around here that call themselves church. Now some are true churches and some are not true churches. But yet he is instructing the church how it is to be governed according to Scripture. So he commits the government of this church there at Ephesus to that of pastor elder and states that it is the Holy Spirit who has made them overseers of the flock. He didn't make them overseers of the flock. It was the Holy Spirit that made them overseers of the flock. So a pastor elder is recognized by what we call a calling. A calling that is an internal calling and an external calling. The Holy Spirit does the work of the internal calling. The Holy Spirit will get a hold of the man that he's bringing into ministry and he won't let him go until he submits to the ministry. As Spurgeon said, if a man can do something else, then do it. But if he can't do anything else, then he's called to be a pastor if the Holy Spirit has got a hold of him. I know when I first began to wrestle with what the Lord was doing as far as calling me into the ministry, I tried working for a year in the oil field business, delivering parts to oil field wells, making good money. And I knew I could support my family. But I was miserable in the oil field business. Even though I had a part-time church serving there, which some say that should have satisfied you. It didn't satisfy me because I knew that where I was was not where I ought to be. And that's the man of God. He can't do anything else. Now, I'm not saying there's not bivocational ministers, but what I'm saying, when there's the calling of God, he will be faithful to that calling and seeking to fulfill it. But there's also the external call. And that is from the people of God. They recognize that this man has been set apart by the Holy Spirit and that he has the gifts of the Holy Spirit to do the work of a pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer. It's evident to them. You've seen those individuals. You've seen those individuals at this church. Over the years we've been a church. Men that rise Above, like crane that rise to the top, these men rise to the top and you realize these men are gifted of God to be pastor, teacher. We see it both in 1 Peter 5, 1 and Titus 1, 5. Paul addresses that as well. Matthew Henry said, They took not this honor to themselves, nor was it confirmed upon them by any prince, but the Holy Spirit in them qualified them for and enriched them to. And this great undertaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and the Holy Spirit also directed those that chose and called and ordained them to the work in answer to prayer. So we see it's the work of the Holy Spirit as well as the work of the church. Elder pastor must be trustworthy. Take heed of himself, being watchful over, first of all, his own soul, but as well over the souls of those that are in his flock. He must walk consciously and behave in a manner that is pleasing to God at all times. He must realize that he is always being watched by others. Some want a godly example. Others want to find some negative thing in his life. And others want to pick a fight. So he must take heed that he is constantly being watched. Paul is saying, take heed of the flock, to all the flock, 
Some one part of it and others another according to your calling opportunity, but see that no part of your ministry is neglected. Now, a pastor must not only take heed of his own soul, but be conscious of the souls of those God has placed under his charge. Just as a sheep or just as a shepherd watches over his sheep. If for just a moment he doesn't watch them, what happens? One has a tendency to wander off. I shared with you in a sermon, I don't know when it was, a number of months ago, maybe been a year ago, my mind can't keep up with time any longer, but how the shepherd would bring the sheep into the pen built by rocks all around. It had one opening, and there would be the gate. Well, he would be the gate. He would lay at the opening so the sheep could not escape. And that's the watch care that the shepherd is to have over his sheep. His main responsibility is to feed the sheep, lead them into green pastures. He begins by, first of all, doing what? Providing them meat, milk, those who are babes in Christ. And expecting them to grow from that milk and to begin to eat meat. Foundational truth must be given to them, but they must advance in their doctrine. He must encourage them. He's not satisfied with them simply drinking meat. I mean, who in the world would be satisfied with a five-year-old drinking a bottle? No, you finally end the bottle even before a year is over and you begin to give them something else, hard food. So he must watch over his sheep as a shepherd watch over his flock by night, being aware of those who would seek to lead them astray, cause them to shipwreck their faith. And there are those that seek to do that. So we must constantly be aware of those people and they must be warned of those people. For Scripture says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you, everyone, day and night with tears. So Paul talks about how he watched over the church there at Ephesus for three years, teaching them and even in tears watching over them. The office of the pastor elder is a spiritual office. He must be a spiritual man. He doesn't have to be a man with great gifts, but he must have the gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. He, he doesn't have to be an Augustine. He doesn't have to be a Calvin, a, a Charles Spurgeon, a George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. I mean, there's only few of them. But it must be evident that he has been born again and is filled with the Spirit of God. Now some of you may be thinking, well, pastor, that's just obvious. Well, there have been many who have entered into the ministry that that was not the case. As we continue our conferences there in Africa, African Pastors Conference, we have had a number of men who were in the pastorate be converted under the preaching of the truth of God's Word there in Africa. I've also known men who were once pastor who ended up leaving the ministry and they don't even attend church now. So it's obvious that they were never born again. There's men who have been very unfaithful in their pastorate, which also gives evidence of their unconverted life. Now, this is one reason why an ordination council must be thorough in their examination of those who seek the pastorate, who believe that they've been called into the ministry. I remember years ago, probably over 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, Tim George, who was dean at um, Beeson Seminary there in, Bir not Birmingham, yeah, it is Birmingham. Uh, he wrote in an article, he said, all a Baptist has to do in an ordination council is smile and say that he loves Jesus 
and he'll be ordained. Sad to say that was true back then. I, I think it has changed in most churches today, at least I hope and pray that it has changed in most churches today. But thinking about that, that, that just about describes my ordination council and how it was. I look back and I'm, I was very disappointed after I began to learn things and understand things. And, and a few years later after that, I'll never forget being at uh, the first church that I was associate pastor here in the metro area uh, where I was serving. We had a young man that was going to seminary and he wanted to be ordained to the ministry. And at that time, Dr. Tom Nettles was our interim pastor. And I remember we gathered together and he would come down simply on Sunday since he was a professor there in Memphis and uh, invited him to the ordination council. And we talked to the guy and asked him all these questions and everything. And, and finally, Dr. Nettles asked him, said, well, can this young man teach? And there was silence. And he said, well, y'all have heard him teach, haven't you? And there was still silence. And it was sad that he had not taught there at the church. And Dr. Nettle said, I think it'd be wise for us to dismiss this ordination council now and put this young man in a place of teaching so he can have the opportunity to teach to see if he has the gift of teaching and then we'll gather back again to have the ordination council. Very wise on Dr. Nettle's part. A pastor elder must have a good knowledge of God's Word because that is what he must teach. He must be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. He doesn't have to be a great theologian, but yet he does have to be a theologian. It's amazing to me. I remember a number of years ago, um, I went blank on the guy's name, interviewer on TV. He was interviewing Joel Osteen. Larry King came to my mind. Larry King was interviewing Joel Osteen, and, and he was also interviewing Al Mohler and talking about theology, and Joel Osteen said, well, I'm just really not a theo the theologian. And I agreed with something Joel Osteen said. Um, and Al Mohler spoke, well, you have to be a theologian. He pointed out quite clearly, and I agree with Al Mohler. And uh, those that are not a theologian, they have no business being a pastor. Um, now, most pastors, I believe, should attend Bible school or seminary to prepare themselves. They cannot be a novice, as the Scripture teaches us, a new convert. Now, there are exceptions, but you've got to remember there was only one Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Um, new Greek when I think he was six years old. New Latin when he was six years old. Now, if you can come and you can, any of these young men, if they're six and they can do Latin and Greek and other things like Charles Spurgeon, then I will listen to you and consider what God may be doing in your life. Um, but that's rare, like I said. When I became a pastor, um, not associate pastor, but pastor of the first church I pastored, I began to realize then that I needed more seminary training, even though I had got a degree of, in education, religious education at New Orleans Seminary, I saw that I needed to enroll, and I did, uh, here in Jackson, and, and then the Lord providentially after that brought me back to Jackson, and our church was actually on the campus of a seminary. What a wonderful opportunity I had to further my education, and uh, I tell some people, I said, well, you know, I did not get a MD because what I did, I said I needed to focus on what it was to be a pastor and teach our people. So I took classes, about 60 hours there. And I tell some people, I said, I don't have what you have, but I do have more hours than you do on your uh, MD, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I think that's good that someone focuses on being a pastor and takes classes at a seminary to, that he knows the classes that he needs to help him in the ministry. Uh, because an elder is charged with the duty of what? Well, Paul tells us he must be one that rebukes, uh, reproves, exhorts, encourages, instructs his people in sound doctrine. But he also must have common sense. 
knowing when to speak and when not to speak, when to hold his tongue. Uh, sad to say, I've met some pastors that don't have common sense. And that's sad. They must have common sense. And of course, that goes back again to the ordination council to make sure they have some common sense. Now, Paul states that the bishop must be blameless. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that he's perfect. You know, as well as I know, only one perfect person, and that was Jesus Christ Himself. But His life is such that people cannot bring a charge against Him that will stick. Now, notice what I said, that will stick. A pastor will often have charges brought against him, but will any of them stick is the question. And he must not be a man where charges are brought against him and stick. Those who are leaders in the church, of course, must be example to the members. It is an office that is high and lofty. Why? Because God is the one that created the office. And Paul even said what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it's the responsibility of a pastor to imitate Christ so that his members might imitate him. His life cannot be marked by evil, sin, or any grounds of accusation that would be true. A pastor elder may sin, and he may even have to step down from his office for a period of time, but he cannot be, but he, and he can be restored depending upon the sin that he's committed. But there are particular sins that if he commits, disqualifies him for life from the pastor. There was a pastor probably 30 years ago, who committed adultery at a church in this particular association, and he left that church and went about five miles away and started a new church. And sad to say, the same thing happened again. That man was disqualified. He should never serve as a pastor again because of his sin, the greatness. Now, can he get forgiveness for that sin? Most definitely. No doubt about that. But he cannot be a pastor because of that sin. But sad to say, this sin has become very common today in the church. When I was growing up, you hardly ever heard of a pastor having fallen into that sin of adultery being a pastor anymore. But today it's very common. Many pastors have been divorced due to that sin and they continue to pastor. Well, my question is, is that really a church if they allow that? Has the candlestick been removed? Listen to what John MacArthur says. The thing that is so frightening about this is that every time a man in the role of shepherd, pastor, elder, overseer in the church sins, and the sin is known and he falls and is forgiven. Yes, by God's grace, he can be restored by the church. Yes, in love, hopefully through repentance. Every time he is then put back into the ministry, the standard is lowered a little bit. The model comes down and now there is a new level of toleration so that the old standard has been lowered to accommodate the sinfulness of the man. Has that not happened in our day? As I said, growing up, I never remember a pastor who had that particular sin pastoring again. But today, it is quite common. Mark Dever said, The elder must model for the congregation, both a strength and a willingness to live a countercultural lifestyle in area where Christ and culture conflict. If, as an elder, a man craves to be conform, conforming pressures of the culture on well-defined biblical issue, his example and teaching will eventually lead the church to look more like the world. How many churches today look more like the world instead of a biblical church? 
The next qualification that he mentions is the husband of one wife. Now, of course, at this particular time, some men had more than one wife. The pagan culture ignored Scripture. We know that in the Old Testament, there was even more frequent men that were even called great men of God had more than one wife. But we know that Jesus clearly taught on this subject, and Jesus set the record straight, stating that God's original intent was what? One wife, one man, husband and wife. He taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught it in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. And we see also in the epistles it's taught by Paul and Peter. Having multiple wives had a sinful impact on the life of David as well as on the life of Solomon. And Solomon understood that. He wrote in Proverbs 21.9, Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now Solomon must have spent a lot of time in the attic because he had... 700 wives and 300 concubines. He probably had a single bed up there in the attic because he had to stay up there a lot of times because he said better to spend time there than with the contentious woman. And out of a thousand women, he must have had a number of contentious ones. There are those who translate this particular passage as a one-woman man. But it appears that the main emphasis is on being married to a Christian wife and having a marriage like that which is described in Ephesians chapter 5. That a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and the wife is to submit to her husband as she would unto Christ. So this qualification is definitely closely related to verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. What we see, it's a joint venture. Husband and wife working together to have such a godly home. The wife must be able to fill in when the husband has other obligations outside the home that may hinder him from doing that which needs to be done. Now throughout my ministry, I have known pastors where this was not the case. Their homes were a wreck, even to the point to where some of their wives would not even attend worship services. I remember one pastor, his wife used to come in late and she would sit up in the balcony by herself. Still don't understand that one. But anyway, a pastor's obligation is to show love to his wife and his wife is to be submissive. Now, of course, a pastor cannot make his children to be saved but he can keep them under control. And if they do not submit to his authority, then there comes a time when they are old enough that he must take greater action and say, you must no longer live in this home because of your rebellious attitude. Verse 5 emphasizes how important this is when he says, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So one of the observations that a church does is watch the person who desires the office of overseer, watch to see how he governs his own family, to see if he's qualified to govern the church of God. One commentator said, a firmness that makes it advisable for children to obey, a wisdom that makes it natural for them to obey, and a love that makes it a pleasure for them to obey. That's a good statement there. I think we ought to all desire that, that we would have a firmness that makes it advisable for the children to obey, a wisdom that makes it natural for them to obey, and a love that makes it a pleasure for them to obey. 
R.C. Sproul said, Ruling the church well requires the same sort of mature, nurture, courage, and thoughtfulness that makes discipline effective. This is common sense observation that the Lord Himself, if a man cannot lead his own family, how can he expect to lead the church of God? And of course, the church is mostly made up of families. So a pastor elder must know how to lead, instruct, and teach and discipline his own family, which reveals whether or not he is qualified to care for the church of God. Now, those are the only qualifications I want us to look at today due to time. But I want to make some applications for us all here today. I've stated what must be looked for in a pastor. Mainly I have, I guess you could say, talked to myself and to those who are in seminary now or finished seminary and preparing for the pastorate. But this is for all of us. In other words, don't be hypocritical. Don't expect for certain ones to seek to meet these qualifications and think that You're exempt from them. No, all of us are to seek to have these qualifications in our life. Now, all of us won't seek to be elders, especially you women, but we are all to have these qualifications as Christians. We should desire these qualifications in our life. Some people have the idea that there's super Christians and then there's Ordinary Christians, I can simply attend church on Sunday and then that's all required of me. Well, there's simply too many passages in Scripture that contradict that idea. Don't listen to the lies of Satan. Listen to the words of Jesus. Then Jesus said to his known disciples, If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whatsoever will save his life, so for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever lose his life for my sake, find it. He also said, or Christ, I mean Paul also said, there if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature, the old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. If anyone comes out to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And Jesus is emphasizing in that particular passage the greatest commandment, and that is what? The first and greatest foremost commandment is to love the Lord our God. In other words, no person or thing can come before God. When we are made a new creature, we then have a love for God. And our desire is to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's because the Spirit of God has worked in our life. If you sit here this morning thinking, Pastor, you must be crazy. There's no way that I can seek to fulfill these qualifications in my life. There's no way I can be that type of person. Now, in one sense, you're right. In and of yourself, you cannot be that person. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are the words of Christ. Apart from being in Christ, you cannot fulfill these duties. But if you are in Christ then yes, you can be that kind of person. When the Holy Spirit makes you a new creation, then you have the power to grow in grace, the power to become more like Christ. That's your desire. And of course, you begin to drink milk, and eventually you move on to meat and you become more like Christ. As I mentioned last week, after justification comes sanctification in your life. As Paul said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works both in you to will and to do His good pleasure. 
So as I close, I must ask this question. Do you have a desire in your heart to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If so, it will be evident. It will be evident to you and it will be evident to others. You will have a desire to worship God on the Lord's day. That means that when God's people gather together for worship, you will gather with them. You will desire to be with them, whenever that may be. I remember after my mother was truly converted, she was a church member for many, many years. She told me this. She said, you know, deep down, I did not enjoy going to church, especially in the evening service. I didn't want to go back to church, but I went. But now that has been changed. You hear what I'm saying? Now that's been changed. I want to be with God's people. I want to worship God. Whenever God's people meet, I want to be with them. Why? Because she had a new heart then. Do you understand when God saves a person, He puts a new desire in your heart. Now sometimes that desire can grow cold after you've been a Christian for some time. And that desire needs to be revived by the Spirit of God in your life to where you have a new yearning for the things of God. It's easy to become discouraged in the midst of the battle, especially when it appears that we're losing the battle. When your household seems to be falling apart, when your children will not obey you, But every one of us in this room have experienced that in our lifetime. Not a single one of us in this room have not experienced difficult times. And we are all confronted with the same problems in the Christian life, believe it or not. Now some experience greater difficulties than others, but we all experience difficulties in our life as Christians. And there's times that we all want to throw up our hands and give up. But you know why these difficulties come into our life? God brings them into our life to cause us to see that we need Him every single moment of every single day. That's why He brings them into our life. And we must walk in the Spirit. We must look to Christ for the grace that we need so that we are gracious people. You know, there's been a few times in my ministry when I've shown grace to parents. But due to things, due to things that happened in their children's life. But then when the tables were turned, some of those same people were not very gracious to me. See, Christians can be very unchristian at times. They can sin. But that must not cause us to lose hope. Instead, we should, it should cause us to even look more to Christ and to rely on His grace to sustain us. I pray that we will all see the importance of continuing to pursue holiness. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord, the Scripture tells us so that we bring honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so that we are His witnesses, so that we remain faithful to the end of the journey until we cross the Jordan River and go into the celestial city. But this is only accomplished by His grace and His grace alone. Therefore, we must have grace in our life. And if that has not occurred, It is impossible for you to seek to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So therefore, my exhortation is to look to Christ. Look to Christ in true repentance and saving faith. For He is the one that enables you by His grace to do that which you cannot do in your own power. So may we all have this desire to have these qualifications in our life so that we bring honor and glory to our Lord and Savior.
Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I pray that each one of us would look at our lives this morning and ask ourselves that question, do I desire for these qualifications to be in my life? And if there is not that desire, Father, how we pray that your Holy Spirit would put it there today, that he would open up the heart and the mind so that their lives would be radically changed, so that they might truly love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bring this reality into those who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Do that which only you can by your Spirit. And I pray, Father, for those who are Christians, Maybe they've grown cold in their walk with you. How I pray that you would stir a flame within their heart. That you would bring them into the bosom of Christ. So that they might renew their love for you and their commitment to you. And strive in the faith and walk in the Spirit. Even as we come today to this table, Father, we are reminded that we are to remember that we are to remember Christ and what Christ has accomplished in giving His life and bringing about the new covenant by His blood. For we know, Father, that without Christ, we would all be damned to an eternal hell. But in His love, He came to shed His blood so that we might have everlasting life. And as we come to the table, may we Remember and may we meditate upon this truth and may we experience His special grace which comes through this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Search our hearts, Father. Cause us to know that we can come to this table because of what He has done, not because of something we have done. Cause us to remember that our sins are forgiven, that our sins have been removed, cast into the depths of the sea. Remember no more. As far as the east is from the west. So what a glorious privilege it is, Father, to come to the table and take of the bread and take of the fruit of the vine and to remember this glorious work of salvation. Prepare our hearts as we spend these moments in meditation and prayer.